3. We're still in our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're in the third chapter. And one of the things that we've learned as we've looked at these first three chapters of this book is that Corinth was a church with many different problems. Now, we've uncovered some of those problems. Uh, all churches that are healthy and growing, they may look good on the surface, but if you look a little bit deeper, you can always find a church with problems. And that's because the devil is not going to let a healthy, growing church alone. So you can always find problems in the church. Here in the church at Corinth, there were many problems. Now, this was a church, of course, at the time we're reading here, was very close to the apostolic age. In fact, the Apostle Paul is the one who founded that church. This great apostle, uh, the people were saved under his ministry. But now, some years later, after this church had been founded, Paul has to write them a letter where he talks to them about problems that they have, and he has to correct those problems. One of the problems in this church was that of worldly wisdom. And this was a church that had simply become intoxicated in their own wisdom. And we could put it very simply that they thought that they had a better idea of how things ought to be run. They knew a better way of dealing with church matters than the Apostle Paul did. And so Paul has to write to them about these problems. So they're not depending upon godly wisdom to lead them. Rather, they're looking to their selves. So Paul told them, he said, your wisdom is foolishness with God. And we know that the best of man's wisdom is always foolishness with God. And the Bible tells us that those who think that they are wise in their own eyes have actually become fools. So you take a church where people are dependent upon their own wisdom and they're not looking for the Holy Spirit to guide them, that will be a church with divisions and problems. And usually the divisions and the ideas about how things ought to go in the church will be as diversant as the numbers of people that there are in that church. Everybody's got a better idea how to do things when we look to our own wisdom. So the only way that we can really have unity of mind and purpose as a church today, as members of Berean Baptist Church, is if we determine that we're going to look to the Holy Spirit for our guidance, we're going to depend upon Him, let Him rule our minds and tell us what we need to do. If we don't do that, then we will have a divisive church with many problems. Now, in this Corinthian church, there were problems with the ministry. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, misleading ministry. Sometimes you'll see on churches outside like we have here. I think our church sign outside says pastor and it gives my name. But hopefully it's giving my name. Uh, but sometimes you find a church that it simply has the word minister there and then have the person's name. Well, you, you may call me the minister of Brian Baptist Church if you like. But what Paul is referring to here in this book of 1 Corinthians is that all of us, as we serve the Lord in his church, we have all become ministers of Christ. So we're going to talk about misleading ministry today. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word. I want to begin at verse number 18. We're going to read down through uh, chapter 4 and verse number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 18 for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, I'm sorry, uh, verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And what Paul is saying there is we need to become fools for Christ. 
Now, men will call you a fool if you follow Christ, but I tell you, I'd rather be a fool in men's eyes than I would to be a fool in God's eyes. Verse number 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Chapter 4, verse number 1, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And you might want to underline in your Bible there the word ministers. Uh, We've talked about it before. It simply means slave here. It means a servant of Christ. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord." Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to be in this place today as we discuss your word. Lord, open our hearts to the truth of your word. Help us to see what we need to be as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we have right views of ministry in this church and as we do your work in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In these verses, what Paul is doing for us is giving us a right-side-up view of ministry. And many people have an upside-down view of ministry. There are lots of people who think that what you have in the church is the church is divided into two groups of people. You have the church and the laity, and, or excuse me, you have the, you have the clergy and the laity, and the clergy is up here somewhere, and the laity is way down on this level. And what Paul is telling us here, that is a totally wrong idea. It's an upside-down view of the ministry. The Bible tells us and shows us that the minister is actually a slave of Christ. And all eyes should never be upon him. All of the eyes of people in the church ought to be upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we ought not to be looking at ministers and thinking about ministers as being the most important thing in the church. But this is not the way it was at Corinth. In Corinth, there were divisions over ministers. And you remember this problem. We've talked about it on a couple of occasions before. There were those old-timers in the church. These were the ones that were there when Paul founded the church. They'd been one to Jesus Christ under his ministry. And these were people who wanted to follow the Apostle Paul. But in this church, it wasn't necessarily they wanted to follow the doctrine of Paul. They just liked Paul. They liked him as a man, and they said, we're of Paul, and they wanted to follow him. On the other hand, there were people in the church who liked this young, charismatic preacher by the name of Apollos. Apollos was a very gifted man, a gifted orator. All the yuppies and the young people of the church, they really liked Apollos. Here's one who could really light a fire under you when he preached. And so there were people who followed Apollos. Still, there are others that, Paul says, who wanted to follow Cephas. Of course, that's referring to Peter. 
We don't have any evidence at all that Peter was ever at the church at Corinth. But evidently there were some people who came from Jerusalem who who did know Peter. And these were people who really liked the things of the law. They liked the old traditions. They liked the rules. They liked to uh, enforce things that people had to follow. And if those people had been allowed complete control of Christianity in the very beginning, it wouldn't have been long before uh, the Christian church would have had the same face as Judaism. These are people that like to bind grievous laws and customs upon people. And they say you have to keep all of these rules and all those regulations, and those things will make you right with God. Well, if those people have their way, then Christian, there is no such thing as Christian liberty. They love to lay down the law. And so in this church, the Corinthian church, there were those who were lining up behind those different leaders. They were worshiping preachers instead of worshiping God. And so what they had was an upside-down view of the ministry. Now, that happens sometimes in a church like Berean Baptist Church. Not so much that you follow the preacher, perhaps, but there's somebody in some ministry that you really like. You want that person there, and against everything else, you think that person ought to be in that ministry, and you're going to follow him. Well, we're going to talk today about misleading ministry in the message. Now, first, I want to uh, consider today jealousy over ministers. Whenever Christians start to pay more attention to human personalities than they do to divine influence, jealousy can be a result. And Christians do become very jealous over one another. You find churches where people divide up into little groups. They have their little cliques. And all of them claim allegiance to the minister rather than allegiance to Christ. You have to be very careful about ministers. I once uh, heard the story of of a young couple in Southern California that were about to be married. And on the day that they were going to be married, there was an earthquake. They were there just ready, ready to say their vows to one another. And an earthquake came and swallowed them up and they died. Well, both of them went to heaven and uh, they appeared before St. Peter and... uh, they asked him, he said, is it still all right if we get married? I mean, we, we, we didn't actually get to see our vow, say our vows, but we would like to get married. And Peter said, well, I, I'll see what I can do for you on that. So Peter left. He was gone for about a week. Then a month passed. And then six months passed. And finally, here comes Peter, and he has a preacher in tow in order to give them their, let them say their vows. Well... The, the, the man looked at him and he said, you know, uh, first Peter, he said, I think what we really need, we need a prenuptial agreement before we get married. And Peter said, what are you talking about, man? It took me six months to find a preacher up here. How long do you think it's going to take to find a lawyer? <laughs> it is amazing today. It is amazing what passes for preachers and preaching in America today. I have great doubts over some of the people that claim to be preachers and ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who may not even be in heaven themselves because they're not teaching and preaching the truth of the word. You have to be very careful. If you put your trust and your confidence in preachers, you are in big trouble of being seriously misled. There are a lot of misleading ministries that are out there today. Now, when you drive down the road, sometimes you'll see a, a danger sign or a warning sign that tells you what to look out for. I want to talk for just a minute here about some danger signs with ministers that you need to look out for. The first danger sign is when a preacher says, I demand blind allegiance. You watch out for a preacher who says, you follow me and you don't follow anybody else. 
You watch out for a preacher who tries to take control of your life, and before you can spit on the sidewalk, you have to go ask his permission. You watch out for a preacher who makes demands upon you and says to you that you all have a curse upon you. If you don't follow me, you have to walk lockstep with me. You watch out for that fellow. Now, in many churches, there are preachers who have totalitarian control over everything. I mean, the preacher is the one who makes all the decisions. He's the guy that handles all the money. He tells everybody what they can and can't do. And I think that you have to watch out for any minister who wants to be anything more than just a co-laborer with his congregation. Paul says you have an upside-down view of ministry because we are not lords over God's heritage. Peter said that. You are not lords, ministers, over God's heritage. We have one Lord, and when that Lord appears, he's the one who's going to reward us. A second danger sign that you need to look out for is when a preacher says, I am never wrong. Now, a pastor obviously has to be sure of his doctrine. You're not going to trust me if I get up in the pulpit and and I say, you know, I have some statements I'd like to make. I have a sermon I'd like to preach, and this is the truth. But I could be wrong. If I'm dealing with matters of salvation and I'm talking about eternal life, I don't want to be wrong on those things. And so when I get up in the pulpit to preach, I have confidence in what I'm telling you. I have confidence in my message. But you watch out because there's a difference here in saying that I am never wrong. A preacher who says, I am never wrong, is somebody who must have a direct pipeline to God, and God is speaking to him just like he did the apostles, uh, just like when they wrote the Word of God centuries ago. He must have that kind of pipeline to God. And if he doesn't have that, then it must be that he's already learned everything that God knows. I've never met anybody like that. I'm not like that. And I know for sure I don't know everything. You've got to watch out for people who say, I am never wrong. Now, here is the truth of the matter. Since I've never met that person, and I know I'm not the person who's never wrong, then I will tell you that when I preach God's word, you need to check me out to see if what I'm saying is absolutely the truth. Don't believe things simply because I say that they're true. What you need to do is to search the scriptures. Now, some people ask us, they say, where did you get that name, Berean Baptist Church? Well, it comes from Acts chapter 17. Paul preached in the, in the city of Berea, about 200 miles north of Corinth, the, the church that we're talking about today. He preached in that city, and the Bible says that they searched the Scriptures to see if the things that Paul said were true. I can promise you this that if they had to search the Scriptures to find out if what Paul said, that great apostle Paul, to find out what he said to see if it's true, you had better believe that you need to search the Scriptures to see if what I say is true. And not only should you do it, I encourage you to do it. I want you to do that. I want you to study God's Word. I want you to listen to what I say, read the Scriptures, and find out for yourself, is this what God's Word really means and what it says? Now, you might read God's Word and you come to a different conclusion than, I, conclusion than I come to. And if you do, come to me. Tell me about that. Because if I'm wrong, I want to know about it. I never want to be guilty of standing in this pulpit and preaching anything to you that is not the absolute truth of God's Word. So check me out on it. Respect me for what I do. Respect me for the study that I give to God's Word. But you be sure to check me out on the side to see if everything is right. 
Now, here's another danger sign for ministers. When a minister says, I have my pet doctrine. When Paul said his farewells to the church at Ephesus, he said, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. You need to beware of preachers who have pet doctrines, and all that they ever want to do is preach that pet doctrine to the exclusion of all other things. Now, what you usually find out is their pet is a very vicious pet, and he'll turn out to be unbalanced and wrong on these things. And so I would tell you that you need to avoid preachers who only preach about soul winning and about separation and about human responsibility to the exclusion of the sovereignty of God and salvation. But I would also tell you that you need to beware of preachers who preach election and predestination without human responsibility. Watch out, because both of those things are taught in God's Word, and we're told to declare the whole counsel of God's Word. So Paul is saying there's a problem here. Some of you are following the clergy instead of following Christ. And there are certain preachers, you know, they develop their own little groupies, and they follow them around, and the result is in the church that there is jealousy over different ministers. Now, the second thing we want to talk about here is joy over ministers. Now, I'm going to be brief on this point so we can get the whole sermon in today. But Paul is very simply saying to us, no more boasting about men. He says in verse number uh, 21 of chapter 3, Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. So he's saying all of these men are ministers for Christ, And it's all right to listen to what they say and follow those faithful men of God. There's nothing wrong with following faithful men of God who preach God's Word. In my library, I have hundreds of books that were were written by men who've died. They wrote so many wonderful things. I use their insight. I use their wisdom to guide me when when I prepare messages. Of course, depending upon the Holy Spirit as I read those things. But, but I have those helps that they, they show me to help open up the Word of God to me. And, and I so much appreciate those who had that ability and who did that. Well, I thank God for people who are living today that are preaching the Word of God. And I listen to that, and, and that helps me. I certainly believe that you ought to be loyal to your pastor. You ought to be loyal to your church. But give thanks to God for ministers all over who are preaching the truth of God's Word. When Brother Ekno was here, I rejoiced because he, he preached at our men's retreat. And he said some things that, in a way that I don't say them. And he helped our men, and he helped me. And I rejoice in God over his ministry. When Brother Castro was here just a few weeks ago, a young man who stood up here and preached the same old truths that Baptists have been preaching for centuries, going back to the old things that Baptists used to believe and preach, And I rejoiced in God because that young man preached the truth of God's Word. And so I thank the Lord for that. That's an encouragement to me. So you ought to have joy in your heart over anyone who preaches the truth. We're children of God. We're in the kingdom of God. And you ought to thank the Lord for anyone who's bringing souls into God's kingdom. So thank the Lord for true ministers. But you also ought to be very discerning about ministries. Be discerning about ministers because there are misleading ones. God's Word has plenty of Scripture that teaches us about false teachers. And so before you join up with anyone's ministry, before you support anyone's ministry, make sure that you've done your due diligence 
Find out if that person is preaching the truth of God's word and teaching what the Bible says. Now, here we come, though, to the real key point of the message today. And, and, and we want to talk about the job of the minister. God has given the minister certain jobs to do. And if we really understood ministry the way Paul speaks of it, the way that God means it here, then we're not going to end up in jealousy and division about ministry. Look at chapter 4, verse number 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, there are two words there that we want to pay close attention to. The first one is the word minister. And the word minister describes the attitude. Ministers must have the right attitude. I told you to underline that word in your Bible, the word minister. It simply means a slave in this context. Now, you might remember from the message a couple of weeks ago that I explained that this word actually has an etymology that means under rower. What it actually refers to is the slaves who were down in the, in the lowest part of those ancient Greek ships. The under rower was on the bottom rung of slaves. There were two rows that were above him, and this under rower was in the very worst position of all. I mean, he, they, they took the worst slaves and they put them into the under rowing position. Do you know what that means to us in the context that Paul is using it here? What he's saying is, there, are, there is no such thing as VIP ministers. Now, in the world today, you've got lots of VIP ministers, or at least they think that they are, and they don't think that they've arrived, and they don't think that they're, uh, you know, or they really do think they're somebody, I should say, when they're invited to the, the big conferences around the co- uh, country to speak, and that minister has really arrived when he can speak at those big conferences. This is not what Paul is saying at all. There are no VIP ministers. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. That, the attitude is wrong, and as servants, we need to display the attitude of servants. Now, remember, my point here today is not to talk only about the pastor, but what I'm saying and what Paul is saying is true of everyone who wants to be a minister, and we're all ministers that are here. If you are a member of Berean Baptist Church, you are a minister. Now, I'm a minister. It's just that my ministry is different from yours. But if we attack this thing together as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will not be any room for boasting, and there will be no room for jealousy about who is head of what ministry in our church. We are servants of Christ. Now, Jesus talked about servanthood in, in Luke chapter 17. He gave the disciples a parable about what it meant to be a servant of the great God of this universe. And in his analogy, he talks about how a master treats his slaves. He says, if you have a servant who's spent all day out there plowing the fields and and feeding the cattle, when it comes time for supper, what do you do with that servant? Do you tell him to go in and sit down and fix his meal and feed himself before he feeds you? Or do you tell him to prepare your supper first, and then he prepares his own? Jesus said, do you thank that servant then because he followed your instructions to do what you said to do? He said, I don't think so. I don't think so. And he says in verse number 10 of Luke chapter 17, So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. You see, when you've done the very best that you can, 
and I do the very best that I can at what I'm doing, the best that we can do is look at ourselves and think, I am a servant. I am a slave of Christ. I might delude myself, and I might think that I really am somebody, but the truth of the matter is I have no claim to fame at all. It's all in Jesus Christ. You see, each of us, we have to remember where we came from. There's a lot of preaching today where preachers get up and they talk about the spiritual worth of the individual, and they speak about the value of people as if that God is looking at something in them And that draws God to them. And whenever you teach people and give them that impression that they are what they are because of who they are, they're they're going to be mixed up once they get saved. And when they get into ministry, they're going to have the wrong idea of who they really are. People will think, well, I deserve heaven. I've tried to be a good person. I've, I've tried to live a good life. I've been seeking God. Surely I'm the one that God's going to let into heaven. But the truth of the matter is, there is not one person who deserves heaven. No one deserves anything but hell. And God in his mercy and his love and his truth and his grace, he reached down to you and he picked you out of that miry miry pit of sin. He brought you out, he cleaned you up, and it's all of God. And so there's nothing in you that could ever cause God to want you or to choose you. In fact, the Bible teaches us that he chose us before we'd ever done any good or evil. So it couldn't have been anything that was in us. So now, once we're saved, what is it that makes us think that we have a reason to boast in who we are? We have nothing. There's nothing that makes us better than anyone else. So when you've done the best that you can do for God, the Bible teaches you are still an unprofitable servant. And if you keep that right attitude about yourself and about ministry, and you stop glorying in yourself, then we won't have the divisions of ministry. All glory belongs to God. And your attitude is, I am a slave. I am saved by the grace of God. I am what I am by God's grace. And after I'm saved, I still am what I am by God's grace. Well, there's a second word that Paul uses to describe the minister's job. This is in the end of verse number one and in verse number two. He says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And the second word we want to notice here is the word steward. And what this speaks of is accountability. Ministers are accountable. A steward is simply someone who takes care of another's property. He's been given a trust. He's been told to watch over it. He doesn't own the property, but he's in charge of making sure that all the affairs are carried out correctly. Years ago in in churches... There actually was a person who was called a steward in the church. Usually, it was his job to take care of the property. He cleaned the building. Now, sometimes he would live there right on the property. It it wasn't his building, obviously, but he had the care for it. And and he had to come and open up the doors before the services on Sunday. When the services were over, he made sure that everything was locked up. And so he had a responsibility. He was accountable for how he handled the affairs of that property. Well, this is what Paul says about ministers. He said that you are stewards. As pastor of the church, I've been placed as a steward over Berean Baptist Church. So God looks at me and holds me accountable for how the affairs of this church are run. And the Bible teaches that I'm going to give an account to God for how I've handled that responsibility. But I want you to notice here what Paul gives us as one 
qualification. Not many qualifications, but one qualification for a steward. He says, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You notice that he doesn't say here that in order for you to be a steward, you must be a successful person. And he doesn't say in order for you to be a steward, you have to be brilliant. In order for you to be a steward over God's things, that you have to have a person with, you have to be a person with 10 degrees behind your name. So that you love to be called rabbi, or as we popularly call preachers today, doctor this and doctor that. He doesn't say that. He says he is required to be faithful. So his accountability is in the area of faithfulness. But let's think for a moment. How, how do people gauge preachers today? And how do they gauge ministries today? The first question that people ask if you're a preacher who goes to conferences, the first thing they'll ask you, how many people do you have in your church? How many people walk down the aisles of your church? Or how many hundreds or, or how many thousands of people are sitting in the pews at your church? Let me tell you something about the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. Now, this was a prophet who, wherever he went, people got saved. He, he went on a cruise one time, and there were people who got saved. He went into a city and preached, and there weren't 3,000 people saved, like Peter preached on Pentecost. But this man preached in a city where as many as maybe 600,000 people got saved because of his message. But then on the other hand, there was another prophet, and this prophet wasn't so successful in men's eyes. This was a preacher who preached for 30 years. There was not one convert who was one under his ministry. He spent a lot of his time mired down in a pit, He wept and he cried over his people for years and there was nobody who got saved. You know who prophets I'm talking about? The first one was Jonah. Now Jonah went out on a boat, cruise. Admittedly, he got thrown overboard on this cruise. But the people on that boat got saved. He went to Nineveh. And uh, this was a huge city at that time. He had an evangelistic campaign. He preached the word of God. and, And in that huge city... There were as many as 600,000 people, they tell us, that repented and got right with God. So you know, if Jonah was alive today, you know what would happen? Everybody would be buying Jonah's book. Soul winning made easy by Jonah. And Jonah would be invited to come to the Sword of the Lord conference. And he'd be preaching in the preaching there and there, you know, he'd have his leadership seminars and everybody would want to go hear Jonah. You know who the other prophet was? His name was Jeremiah. He was the weeping prophet. Nobody went to his seminars. I mean, nobody would come and hear him. Uh, If he went to the Sword of the Lord conference, they'd sit him in the back. They wouldn't let him be an usher at that conference. But you know what happened here, folks, when Jesus came? There was not one person who mistook Jesus for Jonah. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And the disciples said, well, Jesus, uh, they say that you must be Jonah, come back from the dead. I mean, they love your charismatic preaching. You're such a great speaker, and they really want to get all the information and all your books that you've written on soul winning. They think you're Jonah. That's not what they said. He was never, Jesus was never mistaken for Jonah. When he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, one of the people they say that you are, you must be Jeremiah. Well, for goodness sakes, Jeremiah, you mean that guy who preached for 30 years and nobody got saved? You're going to compare Jesus to Jeremiah? 
And here's the point of it. Success for the minister is not determined by how many people follow him. It's not how many people go to his seminars. It's not his ability to write a book that sells millions on the New York uh, Times bestseller list. And it's not in his ability to fill some arena somewhere with people. That's not how you judge the success of ministry or, or whether a, a steward is a good steward. Stewards are required to be faithful. It doesn't say you require them to be successful. I have to be faithful. So thank God when you have a faithful preacher. Thank God for faithful pastors. Thank God for faithful Sunday school teachers and the Pioneer Club workers. Thank God for faithful choir members. Thank God for faithful people that come out here every week and mow our lawns. Thank God for people who are, who are over this building and watch out for things here. Thank God for Grant Evans who's a good steward over the building here. When Jesus Christ comes back, I hope that you're found faithful. Be found faithful. So Paul says, you're a minister, you're a slave, you're a steward for God. So the right attitude is, remember that you're being held accountable for what you do. And so you ought not to be misled by false views of ministerial success. Now, fourthly, let's talk about today the judgment of ministers. Last week, we were talking about the Christian's day in court. And all Christians, we're going to stand one day at the judgment seat of Christ. In these verses, Paul says that there are three types of judgment that are taking place. The first one is we're judged by others. Anybody ever figure that out yet? You're being judged by others? We are constantly being judged by other people. Now, as a pastor, I live in a fishbowl. People are watching me every day. They're watching every move that I make. They watch my family. They see everything that my family does. They're looking at everything that I do and every place I go. And if you decide that you're going to be involved in ministry, what you'll have to learn, number one, develop a thick hide because you're going to need it. Every detail of your life is scrutinized, whether it's rightly or wrongly. With some of you people today, you'll go home today and you'll have roast chicken or roast beef or something for lunch, but you won't fail to also have roast preacher because you'll be talking about the things that I'm doing as well. Some of you will go home and you'll roast Brother Dalton for the way he led singing today or his special that he sang, or you'll roast Gary because of the choir special. Well, in verse number 3, Paul says there's a certain attitude that you need to have when others judge you. And this is the attitude he had. He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I be judged of you or of man's judgment. So Paul says simply, I care very little about whether you judge me. You remember what he said in 2 Corinthians? He said, they're judging me over the way that I preach. And they say, you know, he, his letters, they're weighty. I mean, he's got a lot of good things to say in those letters, a lot of good doctrinal matters he talks about. But his bodily presence, give me a break. He's weak. He's puny. And Paul acknowledged, that's what they're saying about me. But I don't care what men say. Or he says, I care very little for what they say. So what's your attitude when you're judged by others? Well, first, you need to realize this. You're being judged whether you like it or not. You are being judged. No question. Secondly, you need to make sure that there's nothing in your life for which people can judge you and criticize you wrongly. There ought not to be anything there. Don't give them good reason to criticize you. And then thirdly, Paul says, it's a small thing. He doesn't say, I don't care at all. 
that you judge me. He says, it's a small thing to me. So you pay attention when people do criticize you. If there's something factual about that criticism, do something about it. But don't be so worried about this all the time that you go through life apologizing for the fact that you're alive. You don't have to apologize to everybody for every little thing that you do. But here's the thing. If you're doing in your life what God tells you to do, you don't ever worry what somebody else says about you. Don't worry about how they judge you. They may criticize you and they may pick you to death and they may set themselves up as the judge and jury of your life, but don't worry about that. If you're being judged by God and you're pleasing Him, that's all you really need to worry about because if you please God, you don't worry about what men say, but if you please men, you better be afraid of what God might say. You can't do both most of the time. You can't please God and men, so you have to choose which one it's going to be. Then the second thing, he says, he teaches, we judge ourselves. Now, in this verse, Paul says, yea, I judge not mine own self. Now, he didn't judge himself, but we do. We do judge ourselves. Why does Paul say, I don't judge myself? Because he knew this, human judgment is always biased. If you're going to judge yourself, you're going to find out that you are always biased in your favor. We get the wrong picture of ourselves. We're not objective with our judgment. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Paul said, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So you may say then, well, well, why not judge myself? I know more about my character than anybody. Who's a better judge of me than me? Remember what the Bible says about you and your heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, what does that say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And so if you're going to judge yourself, you just better be aware that your heart will deceive you and tell you things about yourself that just isn't true. And you'll say, well, I'm not convinced about that yet. My conscience is clear. What does the Bible say about the conscience? You know, people think, well, this has got to be in the Bible somewhere. Let your conscience be your guide. The Bible never says that. That's not in the Bible. The conscience is defiled is what the Bible teaches. And so you don't let your conscience guide you because you're going to make a mistake if you do. Now, a conscience that's been trained by the Word of God, that might be a different story. But don't always trust your conscience because you are going to judge wrongly. When you judge yourself, you'll always get less than an honest opinion. So others are misleading uh, sometimes when they judge your ministry. You may mislead yourself when you judge yourself, but there's one judgment that you can always count on that's going to be right, and that is we are judged by God. Always God's judgment will be right. Now look at verse number 4. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both, who will both uh, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. So there's coming a time when God will judge in perfect righteousness, and when God comes to do that, it will be the right time. He always judges at the right time. Now, lots of times we jump to conclusions and we make a judgment when we don't have all the evidence. We don't know everything. All the evidence is not in, and so we might not judge correctly. But here's the thing with God. He always has all the evidence. He knows all things. Sometimes you'll read in the paper 
about somebody who got, put, got let out of jail, got out of prison because new evidence is found. And the correct judgment wasn't rendered at the time because all the evidence wasn't in. God knows the smallest detail of every one of our lives. And so God is going to judge us correctly. So you might judge a minister harshly. He may judge himself wrongly. But when God judges, it will be always correct. That's because God judges the heart. Now, we, we, we can't judge motives. God, God does, but we can't. We see actions. God sees motive. And so what is the real motive that you get up and sing a song in front of the church? And what is the real motive that you teach a Sunday school class? What is the real motive when I get up to preach a message before you on Sunday? And if the motive is for me, then I want to make something of myself, then the motive is wrong, and I'm going to be judged for that. But God sees rightly. That's the wonderful thing about it. The motives that others can't see, and when they're criticizing you and they say, you're doing it for all the wrong reasons, but the motive is right, they're criticizing you and say, who does he think that he is? And they think your motive is wrong, but God sees it and he knows it's right, then the Bible says that you will receive something from him. Now, do you know what that is? I'll leave it with you today as your last statement you're listening to. If you deserve praise, God will praise you. Now, you might be thinking today, well, Pastor, in the first part of the message, you said that all the glory goes to God. We're supposed to praise God. So now why are you saying something about us being praised? Well, we're both right here in one sense of the word. That is, none of us deserves the praise of men. We have no reason to be praised by men. But there are some of us that because that we have followed the Lord faithfully, we will receive praise from God. And we're going to be rewarded with praise from God. I mean, when you hear those words, when you get to heaven, well done, thou good and faithful servant, what is that? That's God praising us for what we've done. So if you're saved, you're God's minister, and and when the motives of your heart is right, and you serve God down here as an undeserving servant, then you'll serve him up there in heaven as a deserving servant. And God says that he's going to reward you for that. So what about ministers? Ministers are to be faithful. They're stewards of the word of God. They're being held accountable. And if you are a worker in this church, God is holding you accountable. And you need to always remember, I am nothing more than a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a servant of his. And so wherever God wants me, that's the place where I want to be. I'll serve him and him alone. Misleading ministry. It comes in the area of jealousy, even in joy, in the job, in judgment. In the case of all those things, they can be misleading, and they will be when your eyes are on men instead of on God. So I encourage you today, keep your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you won't be misled by anyone's ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time together. Lord, uh, we just pray that you might bless the words that have been spoken today. We haven't talked about salvation in this message this morning, but, Lord, I do pray that there's anyone here that they have not received you as Lord and Savior of their life, that right now the Holy Spirit would open up their heart and they would understand that Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Lord, I pray that you might help them to see Jesus hanging on that cross and dying and bleeding for those who would believe in him. Lord, I just pray that you'd save some sinner today. Then for others who are Christians, they know you. 
but they're not serving you as they should. They're not faithful as they should be. They haven't taken a ministry in their church. They haven't been productive in their Christian lives. Lord, help us to understand that we have been called to be ministers, to be slaves, to be stewards of the manifold graces of God. Lord, we just pray that you might speak to some heart today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you please stand as we sing?